Good afternoon and good evening, everybody, and welcome to our third and final session for our special seminar uh, with Dr. Shippey on Tolkien's Beowulf. Thanks for joining us again today, and uh, I know we're uh, uh, we're all very interested to hear uh, Tom Shippey talking about the uh, the 2014. Uh, Beowulf publication and seeing how we can kind of tie that all together with the observations that we've been making the last few weeks. So uh, uh, please do remember uh, to go ahead and type questions into your chat box during the session and Dr. Shippey will get to those questions uh, there at the end as he can. So thanks again, of course, for joining us, Dr. Shippey. Okay. Well, hello, everybody. Um, you'll see that um, I, we still haven't sorted out the, uh, the, the camera problem, but we have learned something, or at least I have learned something, which is if I bow my head like this, um, we get a different uh, shot. And I wanted to notice two things. One is that behind me, you will see uh, the uh, calendar, which the Italian Tolkien Association has kindly sent me, which contains uh, 12 scenes from Tolkien. And the one that you can see behind me is, of course, Turin defeating Glauron. So uh, I'm very pleased to uh, have that sent to me by uh, Roberto Arduini. Right, that's one thing. And the other thing, and perhaps we can see that if I uh, change the focus slightly. Actually, I think I need to move slightly. That's it. Uh, up till now, I have, uh, as I usually do, worn my old Edwardian's tie in honor of King Edward School, uh, Tolkien's uh, high school and my own. But uh, today I thought I would go the whole hog and uh, turn up in my uh, old Edwardian's rugby jersey. Um, which, um, you know, I've kept for many years and which seems to have shrunk in the wardrobe. I, uh, I don't know, uh, must be some kind of moth that shrinks the clothes. I can hardly get into it. But anyway, um, as Corey has just said, today I'm talking about Tolkien's third major Beowulf publication, which is his uh, translation and commentary, which came out in 2014. And I'm, and I'm going to talk about the glamour of poesis which is a phrase Tolkien used in 1936 and which I don't think we understood until 2014. Well, as always, I've got a bit of tidying up to do, and the first thing is a few references which I didn't have in my head last week. So if we can have slide one, Corey. I mentioned uh, Ronald Hutton talking about the pagan Tolkien, and uh, this has come out in that, the book Paul Kerry's uh, The Ring and the Cross. It has uh, an article by Ronald, the pagan Tolkien, and a reply from uh, Nils Ivar Agui, who is a Norwegian and also a Lutheran pastor. And he is responding to Ronald Hutton with the Christian Tolkien. Uh, furthermore, uh, I mentioned uh, the volume edited by Thomas Honiger, uh, Laughter in Middle-earth, which contains an essay by uh, Jennifer Raimundo, who is one of the uh, audiences of this lecture, uh, but who can't listen to it at the moment because she has another uh, course to, to deal with. Um, and uh, the last one there, uh, someone asked me about the, uh, uh, the strange uh, saint's life which contains uh, a kind of virtuous pagan story and I couldn't remember the name of the editor but there it is, Earliest Life of Gregory the Great translated by Bertram Colgrave and uh, it says the earliest life, the date of that we can be very sure is very close to the year 710 AD and in my opinion that is also the date of Beowulf it is also somewhere close to 710 AD there are two or three works which uh, I think give us a kind of bearing 
on uh, on Beowulf itself, but they're in Latin. Uh, well, uh, that's one thing I had to uh, to clear up. Uh, they're also, should I say, uh, it is traditional in uh, lectures about Beowulf not to get to the end. Tolkien never got to the end, and indeed I have been told comic stories about the way he never got to the end. And in the 2014 book, you will see that actually uh, the concentration is very much on the early parts of Beowulf because uh, when he was lecturing on the, on the poem, he, uh, he, he never got to the end. Well, I'm going to try not to uh, obey that tradition. Still, uh, there are a few things about the Finsberg story I didn't get round to last week. And one is that we have not one old English poem about it, but two. One is the Finsberg episode in Beowulf, and the other which is also dealt with at length in Tolkien's Finn and Hengist, is called the Finsberg Fragment. It is only a fragment. Uh, it was edited uh, way back in the uh, six, uh, 17th century by somebody who had found it and didn't know any Old English. And since then, the manuscript has been lost. He probably threw it away. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's a pretty poor specimen. On the other hand, it was a gift to Tolkien, who always like to amend things and make them more sensible than they, than they were at first sight. And th in this case, the poem really has to be amended because we've got such a, a poor copy of it. Well, Tolkien worked pretty hard at amending it. Nevertheless, as it stands, the poem, I think, is quite clear. It starts with a rather familiar folktale motif, which is somebody looking out at something going on and giving false or wrong explanations of it, after which he is corrected by another speaker who says, no, it is not those things, it is something else. And in this case, I think it's pretty clear that a watchman has seen a light flashing, and he says, is it a dragon flying? Is it the gables of the hall burning? And he is replied to by Hnaf, the hero of the Half-Danes, who says it is none of those things. What it is, of course, is moonlight flashing on weapons. And this says that the people in the hall at Finsburg are about to be attacked. It's a secret attack at night. And this takes place, notice, before the Finsburg episode in Beowulf starts. Because the Finsburg episode starts with a woman lamenting the events of the night before. But in the fragment, it is the night before. Well, as it stands, though, as I say, I think the poem is quite clear. We have the Watchman episode, and then the Hnaf, who's realized what's going on, gives a call to arms. And it's answered by three men, Guthlaf, Oslaf, and Hengist. And then we switch to the outside, and a young man called Garolf, uh, son of Guthlaf, asks who is holding the door of the hall, because he's an attacker, and in the hall are their defenders defending the doors. Uh, he asks who holds the door, and he's answered by another man who says, I am Sigafath of the Sedja. I am an experienced warrior. If you want to try your luck, go ahead. Um, Guthera, a man called Guthera, has been trying to hold Garolf back and saying, don't risk your precious life. But of course, Garolf takes no notice. He goes forward against Sigafath, and he's killed. Well, now, Tolkien, uh, on page 31 of Finn and Hengist, uh, didn't like this very much. He, uh, he didn't like the fact that there was a Guthlaf inside the hall and a Garolf, son of Guthlaf, outside the hall on opposite sides. And he said, well, this is just 
well, I'll, I'll give his actual words. He says, uh, this situation, father and son on opposite sides, is by no means impossible, but it can here be dismissed from practical consideration. There's too much to conjecture without burdening ourselves with the highly unlikely. Well, that's one of Tolkien's bad habits, and I say it firmly. Tolkien had a habit of going, don't want to know, uh, in commentary like this, and I feel people should have stood up to him more and said, uh, actually, uh, Tollers, uh, um, you can't just dismiss it like that. Actually, this is what I would, what I hope I'd have said to him, is to say, look, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The young fellow outside, Garolf, son of Guthlaf, asks who's holding the door to make sure it's not his father, because his father is defending a door, but not this door. So that's why he asks who's defending the door. Anyway, Tolkien uh, thought, and if we could have slide, uh, uh, slide three, Corey, I seem to have skipped over slide two. Um, if we could have slide three, Tolkien thought that what we got here was uh, what I call uh, a last of the Moicans situation. Um, just waiting for the slide to pop up. Uh, and this is why Garolf is important. Uh, well, you can see what Tolkien uh, wrote there. Um, the most obvious guess is that in him, in Garolf, the young man who, are, who is being held back, but who goes on and is killed, the hopes of a dynasty and a party were centered. Uh, so his death would, well, uh, putting, it, uh, putting it briefly, um, it seems that uh, Garolf is the leader of the free Jutes. He is perhaps a prince of the Jutish dynasty. His father has thrown in with the Danes, but he has thrown in uh, with the, uh, the free Jutes, the Jutes in exile. A situation really not unfamiliar from World War II, actually. So um, when Garolf, son of, uh, son of Guthaf, is killed, that really means that the Jutes, the Jutes in exile, the free Jutes, have no hope now of getting their country back from the Danes who have taken it over. Um, and since the free Jutes have no hope of getting their country back, well, what have they got to do? Possibly, some of them join with their enemy, Hengist, who is on the other side. But once Hengist is disgraced and the free Jutes have no hope of getting their country back, perhaps the only thing they can do is emigrate. And the place they emigrate to is England. And that, then, is the origins of England. Uh, I make a note here. It's not a very popular one. Emigrants are usually losers. That's not very flattering to American pride, but emigrants are usually losers. If they'd won, they'd have stayed at home. Um, and at this point, it, that is to say the mid-fifth century, the Danes are the winners, and it's the people next to them, the Jutes and the Frisians and the Angles, who are being forced out and who are going off to, uh, to found a new country. Well, what I've been saying is that um, the Finn and Henger story takes us to a historical situation which is connected with the strange and vital uh, development uh, of the origins of England, the way that the Roman province of Britannia turned into the non-Roman country Engla land, the land of the English, inhabited, so uh, colonized, so Bede says, by the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. Okay, a historical situation, but uh, it been asked, how can we tell the historical from the mythical? And my answer was that uh, you'd have to have corroboration. 
and the vital corroboration is the identification of the otherwise totally unknown figure of Higelac by several uh, Latin writers close to the date of his own uh, of his own life. So he was a real person, and this has been backed up much more recently by the archaeology at Leira, which shows that there is at least uh, a strong basis for the old legend of the Skildungs, the Shilding dynasty, uh, um, having their power center at Lyra in, uh, in Sjeland in Denmark. However, I would sum up the whole thing by saying that it's not just history and mythical. Um, Beowulf seems to us to be a stratified poem, and it contains a historical stratum and a legendary stratum and a fantastic stratum and a mythical stratum. And the question for us is, how can we tell them all apart? And I'd also say that to the original audience, the first audience, back in the early 8th century, in my opinion, there was no need to tell them apart. They didn't distinguish them the way we do. They thought that history and legend and myth, and possibly the fantastic, well, were all uh, much the same thing, and there was no need to divide them up. Now, this issue of uh, stratification has been sidelined for decades by Tolkien's insistence in 1936 on dismissing the poem as a historical document. Well, it isn't a historical document. It's got no dates in it, for one thing. But it's a document which contains history. And uh, we should, I think, have pressed rather harder in <clears throat> trying to figure out how much of that was true. The problems to do with this arise right from the start. And if we could have slide four, Corey, this is what happens at the start. We're told about the mysterious arrival of Shield Sherving, the child uh, in a, uh, comes floating to land in a boat. Uh, we're told about him. We're told that he is succeeded by Beowulf, his son. Then we're told about his boat burial, that he is put in a boat and the boat and the boat is pushed out to sea, not set on fire, just pushed out to sea, of which, for which we have no other parallel. Uh, and he, Beowulf then is succeeded by Halfdener and his children, who include Hrothgar. And Hrothgar builds Heorot, and once Hrothgar has built Heorot, Grendel arrives, and the fantastic element in the poem uh, takes off. Well, okay, we've already got a string of problems. Why is he called Shild Sherving? There are two things that could mean. It could mean Shild, son of Sherf, or Sherfa, um, or it could mean Shild, who is accompanied by a sheaf, as in sheaf of corn. Well, uh, which do we want? Do we want the sheaf of corn theory, or do we want the son of sheaf theory? Well, Tolkien, um, on uh, page 138 of uh, the 2014 book, uh, he says um, there are two possibilities. It can mean provided with the sheaf, or the son of a figure called sheaf. In favor of the latter is that there are stories like that, which, he, which we know about. In favor of the former is the fact that Shield comes out of the unknown, and so uh, nobody could know his name. Well, uh, Tolkien uh, very much wanted the answer to be that he is Shield, the son of Sheaf. But if the child is a baby below the age of speech, and he just comes floating across the sea, how does anyone know what his father's name is? So that's a good question, 
And Tolkien didn't really have an answer to it. He just said, um, quote, such poetic matters are not strictly logical. Hmm, well, um, perhaps that's one way of getting out of it, but perhaps they ought to be logical. Uh, just the same, uh, Tolkien decided that it had got to be, uh, uh, it had got to mean Shield, the son of Shaft. Um, he's then succeeded by Beowulf, but actually that's, uh, that doesn't make sense. Uh, Beowulf is a very rare name. Uh, this Beowulf, the son of Shield, is quite clearly not Beowulf who fights Grendel. Have we got two guys with the same name? Um, as I say, it's a very rare name. It occurs precisely once outside the poem. Um, in well, I won't tell you where it is. It doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, the general view is that the name of the son of Shield, the son of Shaf of Sheaf, was not Beowulf but Beo. But the guy who was copying the poem had been told, "Look, this is a poem about Beowulf. Here, get on with it." And he came upon the name Beo, you know, very early on, and he thought, "Oh, here's the hero coming," quite reasonably, and he corrected. He corrected. Beo to Beowulf, but really the name was Beo. Yes, uh, but Beo in Old English means barley. And uh, actually, you can't help thinking that uh, barley and sheaf kind of go together, and these are not normal names. Uh, in fact, they look like uh, this, this is where the mythical element comes in. They look like the names of, um, what should we say, fertility gods? Or perhaps it would be right to say culture heroes, culture deities, like, you know, uh, he's not a deity, but John Barleycorn, you know, uh, 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 a folktale image like that. Um, and then we have this boat burial. Why do you put a man in a boat and push him out to sea? Uh, because after all, um, the chances are quite high. Oh, you, you load the boat up with treasure, should I say. You load the boat up with treasure, you push it out to sea, the chances are quite high, A, that it will actually float back, or B, that some passing fisherman or other will see the boat and probably uh, steal all the treasure in it. If you're going to do that, you know, the, if you're going to do that, which is a very rare idea anyway, you ought to set fire to the boat, shouldn't you, to make quite certain that uh, the... Uh, the grave goods are not robbed. But that's not what they do. Why give Shield back to the ocean? Because he came from the ocean. Now this is the kernel of Tolkien's lost road idea. Uh, his idea of going to the land in the far west, going across the sea, going back to the land of immortality, going back to Valinor. Um, and he uh, saw something like that at the start of Beowulf. And there's one very suggestive line, uh, and I, I'll have to give it you in Old English. Nalas hihina lesan lakum theodon, theodustriana dhanathadudon, dehina at frumshafta forth on sendon, ena ober isa umbo wesenda. It's great stuff, but it says, um, by no means did the mourners provide Shield with less gifts with treasures of the people than those did who in the beginning sent him forth alone over the ocean, being a child. And the critical word there, actually, is the demonstrative pronoun. They did not provide him with lesser gifts than those did. And 
this is very peculiar because in the rules of Old English meter a demonstrative pronoun should not take stress and alliteration it's used some 40 odd times in the poem and it never takes stress and alliteration except here so actually what the poet is stressing is they didn't provide him with less gifts than those did who sent him forth who are those? who are these mysterious people? well we never find out it is clear I think that Shield is sent providentially but he's not sent by God because those is plural so who are these plural creatures who have supernatural powers and who send people across the ocean and receive people back across the ocean well in Tolkienian mythology uh, they're the Valar uh, and uh, I think Tolkien got a big hint about the existence of the Valar from this otherwise totally inexplicable stressed line in, uh, in Beowulf well even so just one other thing which uh, combines the historical and the mythical uh, Shield is sent to the Danes because someone had realized uh, that the Danes were Aldor Leasa were without a leader, were without a chief and in other words that there was an interregnum going on and the interregnum is explained much later in the poem uh, by the expulsion of the king of the Danes who is called Heromode and Tolkien was quite clear and I'm sure he's right that uh, in Danish legendary history uh, Heromode was succeeded by Shild but no one knew where Shild came from he is as it were uh, an incomer, an originator and possibly a complete fiction derived from the what the Danes call themselves, the Shieldings he's a kind of personal name derived from a tribal name in other words a story has been made up by an incoming dynasty the dynasty of Halfdener and Hrothgar it seems to, uh, to um, give themselves a bit of authority uh, and, and, and suggest that they are not in fact usurpers well that's the kind of thing that royal families tend to make up but we have a kind of mix there of Heromode who appears to be historical or at least legendary and Shield who appears to be mythical and even more than Shield being mythical Sheaf in Tolkien's view the father of Shield he is really mythical and Tolkien of course wrote a poem about him which I have been promising to get to for some time now and it's there in um, in the Lost Road it's there on pages 87 to 91 and it's the poem called King Sheev. If we could have slide five, Corey. King Sheev in uh, Tolkien's poem is an emissary from the land beyond the Western Sea sent by the Valar. Why is he sent? Well, he is clearly there to, um, what should we say, bring light to the people that walk in darkness. I'm quoting Isaiah here as you remind. Oh dear, uh, sorry about that. We seem to have lost Dr. Shippy momentarily. I shall go try to find him, and uh, please hold, and we'll uh, uh, get back together here as quick as we can. Thanks. Hi, Tom. I'm afraid we, uh, we lost you there for, uh, for, for about a minute. Uh, we okay. seem to be having some connection problems here. Again, sorry, everyone. I will send you guys an email with uh, the link to the, to the session for next week. I think we're just going to try to re 
re-go next week at the same time. Uh, my apologies for the technical difficulties, uh, and we will, uh, we will see what we can do uh, next week. See, I wasn't really emotionally prepared for this seminar to end today anyway, so, you know, uh, I guess there's a bright side to it anyway. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I appreciate your patience, and we will reconvene next week. Thanks. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is our sort of makeup session uh, of the third uh, session of the Beowulf Seminar uh, by Dr. Shippey. I know we were uh, uh, interrupted by uh, strange technical difficulties last week, uh, but we've uh, returned and we're going to resume here with King Sheev, uh, where we left off last time. Uh, to hear what Dr. Shippey has to say on King Sheev, and then uh, and then we're moving on to the uh, 1914 Beowulf edition. So uh, thanks again, Dr. Shippey, for um, uh, for joining us here, and we look forward to carrying on. Okay, thanks, Corey. Uh, I'm sorry, everybody, that uh, things went wrong last week. We uh, don't know what it was. I suspect myself it is the uh, curse of rural areas, which is uh, slow broadband speed. Um, well, I'm just I'm going to go on where I left off, but I'll just do a brief recap. Uh, before we got cut off last week, I said that I thought the Finsburg fragment made sense though Tolkien was uneasy about it. Uh, I also said that I thought that uh, Tolkien's idea that the Finsburg fragment was telling us uh, what I call a last of the Moecken situation, I thought that was a pretty good idea, that this might be an event remembered in England because it was uh, a critical one for the origins of England. Because uh, at this point, at Finsburg, the uh, Jutes finally lose their hope of regaining independence and many of them emigrate to England, and in fact, specifically, to Kent. Um, though there were also, strangely, a group of Jutes who retained a kind of separate identity in Hampshire, which is the next county over from me, and indeed King Alfred's wife, this is hundreds of years after the, uh, the immigration, King Alfred's wife was still known to be a Jute from the Meon Valley in Hampshire. Well, um, uh, that's why the Finsburg fragment and the Finsburg episode were remembered in England, but they weren't remembered very much uh, in Denmark. Uh, the, uh, the traditions had, uh, had separated winners and losers. I also said that um, I thought that Beowulf, well, nearly everybody thinks that Beowulf is a stratified poem. It's got a historical layer, it's got a legendary layer, it's got a fantastic layer, it's even got a mythical layer. And the problem of sorting these out is there right from the start. Well, I mentioned right at the start, we have the mysterious arrival of Schild Scherfing, who is succeeded by his son Beowulf. And then we have the boat burial of Schild Scherfing, and we have Beowulf succeeded by Halfdener and his children, including Hrothgar, and that leads straight on to the building of Heorot, the arrival of Grendel, etc. But um, there are problems in what I've said already. Um, why is he called Schild Schärfing? There are two possibilities. He's called Schild, the person with the sheaf, or he's called Schild, the son of Schärfer, the son of sheaf. Um, well, actually, logically speaking, he can't be the son of sheaf or sheaf because he arrives in a boat as a baby and he can't talk. So how does anyone know 
who his father is. Tolkien recognized this problem but said, well, poems aren't logical. And that's because he very much wanted Shield to be the son of Sheev. Sheev. Um, you might say that logic demands that he actually is Shield with the Sheev. And we do have rather strange stories which suggest that there was some such story of a strange boy who arrived in a boat in some kind of, or sometimes in a, on a shield, that's why he's called shield, um, but that he had a sheaf with him. But which of these stories is the original, we don't know. It's clear that people could quite easily make up, store, make up uh, stories to explain names, and perhaps that's what they did. Well, so there's a problem there, and I won't try and solve that for the moment, because I'm hopping on to the next problem, which is that he's succeeded by Beowulf. But he isn't succeeded by Beowulf, um, because uh, Beowulf, the hero of the poem, doesn't appear for another couple of hundred lines. And uh, cutting it short, Tolkien thought, and I agree with him, that what happened was, here we are in a kind of... Uh, uh, medieval scriptorium, and somebody is told, um, I wanted to copy this poem out, okay? It's a poem about a guy called Beowulf, okay? And the guy says, okay, and he starts copying. And round about line 40, whatever it is, he comes upon a name which looks like Beowulf. But he's been told it's a poem about a guy called Beowulf, so he thinks, huh, uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is a copying error, I'll correct it. And instead of the name he sees, he writes Beowulf. Which, which he does twice. But actually, we think that it would run a lot better, it would scan a lot better, it would obey the rules of poetic meter better if the name was Beo, B-E-O-W. So you can see how that mistake could well have arisen. Uh, but Beo, in uh, Old English, just means barley. So we've got a guy who is called Shield, who may or may not be the son of Sheaf, and who has a son called Barley. Well, this looks like a myth, doesn't it? It looks like a, some kind of myth about some kind of, um, well, fertility deity, or some kind of culture hero associated with agriculture. Uh, well, that's our first problem was Shield Shearfing, our second problem was Beow or Beowulf. And the third problem, which interested Tolkien very much, is the boat burial of Shield. Um, why put him in a boat and push him out to sea? That is not something which is recorded anywhere else. There are boat burials recorded when you push the boat out to sea, but it's always set on fire first. That's the Viking funeral, you know? Um, and that makes sense, because if you push a boat out to sea, especially if it's loaded down with valuables, as the boat burial of Shield is, well, in the first place, um, some fisherman is going to find it and, and do what you might call grave robbing, only it's not a grave. And in the second place, uh, in the uh, uh, waters of the Atlantic, the tide is very likely to just push it back again, and, and it'll be stranded. It is not a secure way of burying anyone, especially if there are valuables with it. So that, you know, in a way, that, that doesn't make sense. And um, Tolkien, though, was, was extremely interested in it, because he thought, 
perhaps it does make sense because don't forget and this is a really strange line don't forget that it's said in the poem by no means did the mourners uh, bury shield shield with less treasures with treasures of the people than those did who sent him forth and I said that that half line than those did is quite anomalous in Beowulf and in Anglo-Saxon poetry because it puts strong stress on the word for those and the natural question is who are those? If Shield was sent by God then it wouldn't be those would it? It would be he. So who are the those? And that I think gave Tolkien a big hint for his own mythology because uh, in, in his view the those are something very like the Valar and they are acting providentially they are sending shield to heal the woes of Denmark and of course it then makes sense if he is returned to them the boat will be pushed out and the Valar will take it or again using Tolkien's own mythology the Valar will see to it that the boat finds the lost straight road and finds it way back to where shield came from which is Valinor okay uh, this then is a uh, an important suggestive uh, hint for Tolkien which he uh, which he picked up uh, he also noted and this takes us away from myth and back to what seems to be I won't call it history takes us back to legend because he said that the the whoever it is sends shield because he recognizes that the Danes are Aldor Leasa princeless they are without a prince and he says it's obvious that uh, he is sent to uh, fix the interregnum which we find out later may well have been caused by the dismissal of Heremode. Heremode was a king of the Danes whom they drove out and after they drove him out they were presumably Aldorleas without a king and so Shield was sent to fill the gap and to replace Heremode. Well uh, this is not told in a straightforward one two three four uh, order in Beowulf but then in Beowulf things very rarely are told in a one two three four order you have to figure it out uh, for, by, by uh, p fitting the pieces together well uh, Tolkien then thought that uh, uh, myth and legend and possibly history were all uh, mixed up uh, uh, together um, but I'll go back to the the myth section and this is where <laughs> everybody cross their fingers please this is where we got cut off last time um, because I'm now looking at uh, the uh, poem that uh, Tolkien uh, published in his uh, book uh, The Lost Road uh, and uh, which you'll find on oh, pages 80 following uh, in that volume and it's, uh, it's, um, it's Tolkien's idea of uh, the original myth of King Sheev well um, I'm just looking at his sort of prose um, account of this and it says what it says in Beowulf and it says um, uh, so they took the boy to be king and they called him not shield they called him sheaf and that's what his name is uh, remembered in song and it says that in his time in King Sheaf's time these days songs are called the golden years while the great mill of sheaf was guarded still in the island sanctuary of the north 
and from the mill came golden grain, and there was no want in all the realms. What's the island sanctuary of the north? Well, we didn't know this, actually, until 2014. And now we realize that Tolkien actually thought that Heorot, uh, the Hall of Hrothgar, was uh, an important religious site, uh, and that its conquest by Hrothgar was one of his great achievements. And that, I think, is the island sanctuary of the north. And it's the great mill of Sheaf, is it? Well, no, actually. According to the, uh, uh, the Danish legends, the great mill, and there is a, a long poem about it, the great mill was not uh, the possession of Sheaf, it was the possession of Froda. Now, Froda in Beowulf, I won't try and tell the whole story, he appears to be a, shall we say, a bad character. But there are other versions of the story, or possibly there are two people with different stories, in which he is a, a good character. In fact, he is, and I don't like to say this because it's said so often, but he is a kind of Christ analog. Their story is that during his reign, uh, what, uh, what there was was the, the Froda Frith, the, the Frith, the peace of Froda. Froda. Um, and during that time, which is the time when Christ was on earth, all war ceased and everything was a golden age. So uh, the great mill, which grinds out corn and which grinds out plenty, is the possession of Froda. Tonkin, however, changed the name to being the great mill of Sheaf. Um, and I can see why, because of the very considerable confusions hanging around the name of Froda. Nevertheless, you will have guessed already that uh, Tolkien called his main hero Froda. Called him Frodo? No, he didn't. Because, don't forget, Hobbit names, like Bilbo, really ended in A. But Tolkien decided to change that, that to an O, because to us, A is an ending for a female name, like um, Nobelia, or Clarissa, or Pamela, or Amanda. I can't think of any more. But you get the point. Uh, Froda to us would sound like a female name, so Tolkien made it Frodo. In his appendix uh, to Lord of the Rings, he says that some Hobbit names uh, didn't mean anything. They were like Bilbo. And he says some Hobbits, however, were called after heroes of, of the past, like Frederick and Meriadoc. But he never said which one Frodo was. You might think Frodo is a name like Bilbo or Bungo, but it isn't. It's a name like Meriadoc and Peregrine. It just sounds like one of the other names. So Tolkien capitalized on that potential ambiguity. But anyway, his main Lord of the Rings hero is uh, Froda, who is strongly associated, sorry, is Frodo, who is strongly associated in Tolkien's mind with the legendary hero Froda, the owner of the mill, but he has transferred that legend to his king Sheaf. Well, I don't think I'll try and summarize all that again. Uh, you can see that Tolkien is probing uh, the, uh, the roots of myth, you might say, which he thinks he can discern, not only in Beowulf, but also in the stories associated with it. Well, let's say then, that, as I have, that um, uh, uh, Frotha, um, transferred by Tolkien to Sheaf, is a kind of Christ analogue. And what 
precisely what kind of analog is he? Well, I would say that uh, it's not he's a forerunner, like John the Baptist. Rather, he's a sort of parallel. Um, obviously, an incomplete parallel, um, a temporary parallel. But what he brings is something like uh, hope. Um, and if you look at the poem King Sheev, uh, what strikes me about it, um, well, you've got this, the slide up, uh, is uh, that um, it describes a time of fear and hopelessness before he comes. And there's the, uh, there it is on the slide. Laughter they knew not, light nor wisdom, shadow was upon them. And shadow is a very ominous word to Tolkien. He comes then with the water in the gold vessel, the gold harp, the golden sheaf, and he is a baby, and he is put in a room by himself, uh, and it says, um, on his bed they bore him to their bleak dwellings, dark walled and drear, in a dim region between waste and sea. So we're all still very much under the shadow. And they leave the baby there, and they come the next morning, doors were opened, men strode within, then amazed halted, fear and wonder filled the watchman. The house was bare, hall deserted, no form found they on the floor lying. But by bed forsaken, the bright vessel, dry and empty in the dust standing. Well, what does this remind you of? It, surely it reminds us of the biblical story of the Marys coming to the tomb of Jesus and finding the tomb empty. And finding the tomb empty is a message of hope. And finding the child not there is likewise a message of hope. Um, because he's actually um, uh, become, uh, in a way, uh, immediately, uh, not a baby, but, but an adult. And he stands there singing a song, accompanying himself with his harp. And at his feet they saw the fallow golden corn sheaf lying. Well, um, the poem goes on to remind us that uh, this was a time of shadow, the dark shadow that haunted the hills and the whole forest. Dread was their master, etc. But now things are different. Now things are different. Uh, and again, it's there on the slide. Their need he healed and laws renewed, long forsaken. Um, Grey-bearded men bowed before him and blessed his coming. So he actually brings hope uh, to, the, uh, to the north uh, and, uh, and also wealth and prosperity, as in the old legend of, uh, of uh, Frotha and the, and the mill. Um, the hoar forest in his days drew back to the dark mountains. The shadow receded, and shining corn, white ears of wheat, whispered in the breezes where waste had been. So, uh, right, sheaf comes. He pushes back the shadow, he gives people hope and prosperity. Um, and he then uh, begets seven sons, um, one of whom is uh, Alfwina, heir of Edwina, uh, and uh, they are the founders of the kingdoms of the north. Well, there's, there's one other thing I, I'd like to, to say, and this weighs heavy with me. Um, and I think it's because... Um, this is not something I learned from scholarship. It's something I learned from my granny, I think. Um, how many lines are there in the poem King Sheev? There are 153 lines. 
Well, 153, and this is what I heard from my granny, is a, a magic number. And what it is, it's the number of salvation. 153 is the number of salvation. Don't tell me Tolkien didn't know that. This is just like the climax of Lord of the Rings, which takes place on March the 25th. And March the 25th, in old tradition, is the date of the crucifixion. It's also the date of the Annunciation, nine months before the Nativity, as you might expect. But March the 25th, then, is a, a magic date, and Tolkien picked it deliberately. And 153 is a magic number, and Tolkien picked it deliberately. And it is the number of salvation. And how do we know that? Well, actually, we know it from the Gospel of John. John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. It's the story of the miraculous draft of fishes. You may remember that Jesus in this story has died, or sorry, I should say, has been crucified. Uh, the disciples are uh, now fishing again, casting their nets, and catching nothing. And then they see a, a shape on the shore which says, cast your nets on the other side. And they cast their nets on the other side, and the net is immediately filled and they haul in the fish they've caught, and the number of fishes, I'm quoting the King James Bible, was an hundred and fifty and three. And this story is actually the story of the foundation of the church, because Simon Peter recognizes Jesus, and Jesus tells him that from now on he is to be a fisher of men, and the net, the, sorry, the fish caught in the net, they are the souls saved by the church. So, this is the story of the foundation of the church, and the, and the fishes are the saved souls, and the number of fishes is the number of salvation. You perhaps don't need to know this, and probably don't want to know it, but St. Augustine, who worried a lot about this, uh, pointed out that uh, 153 is factorial 17. In other words, if you add up 17 and 16 and 15 and 14 and 13 all the way down to 1, that is determined by the formula n times n plus 1 divided by 2. 17 times 17 plus 1, which is 18, divided by 2, is 17 times 9, which is 153. And Augustine said, that shows that salvation is achieved by obeying the Ten Commandments and, uh, and practicing the seven cardinal virtues. 10 plus 7, 17. That's what gets you salvation. Okay, that was a digression. Um, the sheave myth then uh, connects to history and legend in the Frothafrith, and it also connects to Tolkien's personal obsession, which is the land in the far west, the land the other side of the lost road, uh, the land of Valinor, the land from which we have, well, actually, from which the elves have been exiled, but which they they, they could return to, and perhaps we have a hope of returning to it as well. But in all this, there is a, a mixture of uh, myth, the culture hero part of it, uh, and the Christ parallel part of it, and legend, which is the Frothafrith and Heromode, and possibly history. And uh, sometimes, as I say, they are in the poem stratified, and sometimes, well, they are mingled. Well, um, 
I said there are a lot of problems at the start of the poem, and actually there's one which is even earlier than the ones I've said. If we could just have a glance at that, this is our slide number six. Um, perhaps what this tells us is uh, what a tricky poem Beowulf is. Um, these are the, uh, the, the about line uh, four or so. Um, After chill shaving, rob the host of foam. Well, it, it's there in the Anglo-Saxon as well. Let me just say, hosts of foemen, that's uh, sheathena threatum. Sheathena is genitive plural. Threatum is dative plural. Monium is dative plural. Megthum is dative plural. Meadowsettler is accusative plural. Jolly good. I think we've got the idea. He robbed the hosts of foemen, many peoples, of the seats where they drank their mead. And then, I always see a typo at this moment, don't I? Laid fear upon men. But actually, it doesn't say men. It says Eichrida, which is laid fear on Eor, which is accusative singular. Or nominative singular, but it's probably accusative singular. So he, uh, he robbed the host of foemen, many peoples of the seats where they drank their mead, and he laid fear upon a man. No, no. The singular just isn't right there. And nearly all editors just change Eor, singular, to Eorlas, plural. He laid fear upon men, and that's, that indeed is Tolkien's translation. But the question arises, Eorl is a perfectly regular word, it's very familiar in Anglo-Saxon, and it's quite familiar in modern English, and it hasn't changed, really. Um, so why would a copyist, you can see why he got Beowulf and Beow mixed up, but what was his problem with a word like Eorlas? Surely he'd have recognized that. It's dead easy. But he, tr he changed it to Eor. And, uh, well, the suggestion is that in, his, in the text he was copying, and, you know, you're, you're always pretty bad copying when you start off because you haven't really got the, got the hang of it yet. Perhaps in his original copy, it didn't say Eor. It said Eorle, Eorle, with an E. Notice that Anglo-Saxons did not use capital letters to indicate the names of peoples. So Eorla would have looked like the normal word Eor in the dative, in the dative case. But the copyist perhaps thought Exian, the verb, doesn't take the dative. It takes the, takes the accusative. It's a mistake. I'll, I'll correct it. Um, Hypercorrections are you know, one of the menaces of textual history. So he changed Eorla to Eor thinking that uh, it was a, 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 a dative singular. But it wasn't. It was another plural. Because names of peoples in Anglo-Saxon do not always take the A-S ending. Sorry, the A-S ending. The A-S ending. Um, they quite often take the E ending. As in Saxa for Saxons, Engler for uh, English, um, Sueva for Swabians, and so on. And so the suggestion is that this was not actually uh, a normal noun. It was a proper name. And it was the name of a tribe. And the tribe were called the Eorla. Um, and this tribe had vanished from the face of the earth. And their copyist writing around the year 1000 just didn't recognize it. Didn't know who they were. But we know who they were. These are actually, what shall I call them? The barbarians, barbarians. These are the, the Eruli, which I think 
is the Roman spelling of uh, the word which became Aeola, they, I think, themselves would call themselves the Erilar. And there are several runic inscriptions long before the Vikings which actually mention the Erilar. Usually they say Ek Erilar, I, the Eril. Um, so these are the people that the, uh, the, the um, Romans called the, the, the Heruli. They often put an H on the end of, uh, of uh, Germanic words, and which uh, the, the, they themselves would have called the, the Erilar. Um, and these were actually notorious for their ferocity. Even the other barbarians thought that the Eruli were really barbaric. They were obviously, in a way, feared, but also admired. Well, that then is a pretty good boast, isn't it, for Schild? What he did was rob the hosts of foment, many peoples of the seats where they drank their meat, and he and he even he even struck fear into those notorious savages, the Eruli. And we have corroboration of this, because Jordani's history of the Goths actually says that's what happened. That the Danes, as they expanded out of their first base in southern Sweden across the islands, what they did was they, they drove the Eruli from their homes. So Jordan is writing in the mid-sixth century, and our poem copied around about the year 1000, nearly 500 years later, are in a way saying the same thing. But uh, the scribe writing in the year 1000 didn't recognize it. And why should he? It had, all, it had all happened hundreds of years before, and he didn't know about it anymore. Nevertheless, what I conclude from that, if you accept this emendation, and Tolkien didn't, but if you do accept it, then you um, can say the poet was really well informed, really well informed, about events in the post-Roman Iron Age, the early Germanic Iron Age, as archaeologists call it. Uh, just one thing. I said Tolkien didn't accept this, but he did say, it's on page 238 in the 2014 book, copyists at all times are apt to bungle proper names. Right. And that happens again and again in the text of Beowulf. Um, well now, the 2014 publication by, by Tolkien, the translation and the commentary, uh, has opened our eyes about some things. And perhaps the most important one, for me anyway, is that we now have a much better idea of uh, what Tolkien really thought about the historical value of the poem. Could we have slide seven, Corey? Uh, what did Tolkien say in 1936 about the historical value of the poem? Well, he said, you can see it there on your, on your screens, it's, this illusion is largely a product of art, and we must take care lest the glamour of poesis overcome them, overcome us, I should say. Well, what did he mean by a product of art? And what did he mean by the glamour of poesis? Well, um, actually, of course, Tolkien didn't say. Uh, he, was just, he was just giving a general warning. Uh, but and the reason he was giving the general warning was that he felt that uh, the search for history had been overdone and he wanted to stress the fantasy element in Beowulf, which he felt had been neglected. Fair enough. We agree about that. The fantasy element is very important. But uh, in 1936, it was important for Tolkien to...
push the historical interest aside. Um, but actually, uh, that was only, you might say, temporary and for a particular purpose. And uh, he also said, and this is 1936 as well, all right, all right, all right. The poem is not an actual picture of historic Scandinavia, but it's a pretty consistent picture, a construction bearing clearly the marks of design and thought. Um, to which one might well reply in 1936, well, Professor, it may be clear to you, but it's not clear to me. What do you mean about design and thought? What do you mean about a product of art? And what do you mean about the glamour of poesis? Well, I think you can read the 1936 lecture as much as you like and not get an answer to that. But, um, but we now know because we've got the 2014 publication. What Tolkien meant was that the poet had a very good idea of the legendary background of the Danes and of the Swedes and of that almost forgotten people, the Yeats, and that what he did, what he did so cleverly, was to insert Beowulf and the monsters into exactly the right moment. Yes, actually, if that is the case, uh, I can only kind of um, whistle with admiration because fitting together the history, the legendary history of all those peoples and others as well is really a pretty difficult exercise. Um, unless, of course, it wasn't a difficult exercise because that's what really happened. And Tolkien, I think, uh, thought that. And he went so far as to give a chronology of all these events, all the events in the poem, which is on page 323 of uh, Tolkien 2014. And if we can have slide uh, 8, uh, I've adapted it a bit uh, so as to bring in Tolkien's earlier commentary on page 157 and also his uh, the chronology he uh, worked out for uh, Finn and Hengist. So th this is based on, well, it's all Tolkien, but it's uh, I've snippeted it, to, uh, I've cut and pasted it together from uh, his different attempts at producing a chronology. And you see it's actually quite detailed. Uh, starts about 450, goes through to the death of Higelac at 525. Note that the death of Froda in there is also the moment of the conquest of Heorot, the island sanctuary in the north. And it's also, it also explains something said about Hrothgar. It says right at the start, to him was Herospade given. Herospade is success in war. Okay, so Hrothgar was a successful warrior, which you would expect, or he wouldn't have the prestige he has, but uh, give us a clue. What did he do? Not a word about that. Tolkien says what he must have done, what would fit very well, is if he conquered the site of Heorot from the character Froda, who is here, not as it were, good, uh, good Froda, but bad Froda. Um, so uh, Tolkien thinks that, uh, that uh, uh, the, the Beowulf poet had all these events pretty much in his head. The, the anchor point, uh, of course, need I say, uh, neither Beowulf nor uh, uh, the Finsberg fragment or anything else like that gives us any dates. All these dates are reconstructed. 
but the, the anchor point of our dating system is the death of Beowulf's uncle Higelac while raiding uh, the, the Netherlands. And because of the way that this is recorded by Latin historians, we can date that pretty closely to 525 plus or minus, well, maybe five years. Let's call it 525. So what Tolkien did really was to work back from that. The death of Higelac has not happened uh, at the time when, uh, when um, Beowulf arrives at Herod, nor has uh, Ingeld uh, uh, died. But, uh, but, it, but that is obviously coming quite close in the future. So we go back a little bit from Higelac to Ingeld, we go back a little bit from, from Ingeld to Beowulf's arrival. And then we go back quite a long way because actually uh, Tolkien thought that um, uh, he noted that uh, Grendel had, had afflicted Herod for 12 years and he thought 12 years that's perhaps about the sort of time you'd expect for a child, Ingeld, to grow up and become marriageable. So let's put it back 15 years or so and assume that Ingeld was born uh, before the death of his father. So, we, so Ingeld then becomes kind of an 18 year old and, the, and his father dies shortly after he's born. And you can work out the kind of uh, 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 stages back uh, from the, the kind of thing I've been saying. Incidentally, the fight at Finsburg, 450, is very close to the, to the traditional date of the arrival of the Jutes in England. It's actually 449, but let's not quibble about a year or two. Um, so the fight at Finsburg could well be somewhere around 450. The death of Higelac is definitely somewhere around 525. And everything else that the poem mentions, well, no, most of the things that the poem mentions are fitted in to that long lifetime. Well, um, what's the, uh, the, the, uh, what effect does this chronology have on our thinking? Well, um, one thing is, uh, that uh, uh, the poem is set during a period of great upheaval and what's going on kind of geopolitically and I, I do think the poem is uh, a very geopolitical poem uh, what's going on geopolitically is the Danes are on the up and up they've dealt with the Aerially they've, they've, uh, they've driven out the Jutes uh, they are the, the rising power in the Northlands. They have expanded from South Sweden to the next island of Sjælland, to the next island of Finn, and, and they're pushing their way into Jutland. And what they are doing, don't forget what the, what the poet said, they are taking away the mead benches from many peoples. Ah. Well, the poem makes it obvious that social drinking among the warrior class is kind of the cornerstone of society. You take away their mead benches means you're, you're depriving them of their central focus. And what you're doing then is you are removing their independence. You are reducing them to subordinate status. They may still have mead benches, but they will be your mead benches, not their mead benches. Well, that's what's happening, strangely well described, with the rise of the Danes. At the same time, we can see the growing power of the Yats, Beowulf's people, and that growing power is based on his uncle Higelac. 
because not only is he, is he going to die in a famous raid, before that he has heavily defeated the Swedes um, and killed their king, Ongentio, um, and started a, a process of uh, Yertish superiority over the Swedes. So the Danes and the Yerts are on the up and up, and they have recently, Hrothgar tells us, made a kind of deal with each other. They used to be hostile, they're not hostile anymore. They have become gift exchangers. And what they're doing, I think, is, you might say, this has parallels in American history, you know. They're creating a kind of back-to-back -back alliance. The Danes will now look west towards Jutland and the Frisians and taking that area over, and the Yeats are looking northward, and they mean to extend their power at the expense of the Swedes. Well, that is what's happening round about the time of Beowulf's arrival at Heorot, 520, but it's going to be very much altered by the death of Higelac, together with a large part of the Yertish army, the Yertish strike force, uh, on his disastrous raid in the Netherlands. Once he's dead, uh, well, the poem tells us that Beowulf takes over, uh, but he makes it, the poem does make it clear that Beowulf takes over in bad circumstances. Uh, actually, Higelac succeeded by his son, Heardred. The Swedes kill him. Beowulf takes revenge, it's said, and reigns for 50 years, but <coughs> that looks like fantasy. Because Beowulf is, is a figure of fantasy. And it seems as if the poet is protracting the, the, the power of the Yats uh, to give his hero something to do. But realistically, at the end of the poem, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, messenger says, to the other Yats, once Beowulf is dead, now we're for it. We've annoyed the Franks, we've seriously annoyed the Swedes, everybody's got us in for us, we are going to suffer. And the poet says, actually, uh, he did not lie much, or should we say, he was not far wrong. And allowing for English understatement, that means he was exactly right. The Yats once Beowulf is dead, or actually once Higelac and his son are dead, they are going to be, uh, they're going to lose their independence. They're going to have their mead benches taken away, just like the people whom, whom the Danes have been conquering. So the Swedes will become the dominant power in the north, as will the Danes, but the Yats will fade. Well, um, as it happens, we have, uh, can we have the next slide, Corey? We have strong evidence for all this, um, much of it uh, produced by my, uh, my friend Martin Rundqvist, who I may say is a very keen member of the Swedish Tolkien Society. And his book, Mead Halls of the Eastern Yats, is, uh, I won't say it's a fun read, actually, uh, but it is a very thorough archaeological exercise. Uh, and Martin expresses his views very cautiously and scholarly and carefully but he agrees with people who think that there was very serious trouble in the southern Scandinavian world in the, in the 530s. In fact, some Swedish archaeologists call this the, uh, the migration period crisis. Uh, and there seems to have been um, 
there's evidence of uh, uh, well uh, the main evidence actually <coughs> and this was said to me by um, another uh, archaeologist a Dane uh, called Haskund who, who actually works in Sweden but he said uh, the archaeological evidence we're turning up is that the warfare at that time the internal warfare at that time its main aim was smashing each other's halls he said we come upon halls which have been burned destroyed the site you know leveled and he thinks that that's that's just what the poet said it taking away the mead benches means smashing halls you smash the hall that means you get rid of the royal dynasty that means you take the place over it's seizing we would say the seat of government the capital um, and that's the way you expand and become a major dominant people you you wipe out you know you don't wipe out you take over the smaller peoples who surround you and you say to them you are Danes now or you are half Danes now but you're going to be Danes and the same is what the Swedes say well uh, the um, the web reference there is a, a paper that Martin gave which uh, actually um, argues that uh, that uh, the real sign of all this is the fact you don't find gold anymore the period before was a kind of golden age for Scandinavia and you find lots of gold hoards buried um, and then it dries up and you don't find anything or you find he says a few pathetic remnants he thinks that what happened was that the, the Franks uh, cut the northern world off from its supplies of valuables and possibly this is what made Higelac launch his raid he didn't do it for no reason he did it because the Franks had shut him out and he wanted to get back the valuables which they needed for gift circulation uh, well you might say the easy way only it turned out not to be the easy way so all this actually um, gives a, a really rather good picture and you could also say that it's this turmoil caused one thinks by the collapse of the Roman Empire it's this post-Roman turmoil which among other things caused the settlement of England because England was settled basically by the loser groups the Jutes under Hengist the Danes because there was a Danish faction who were defeated in their civil war uh, and one of the princelings who seems to have disappeared from Danish legend is called Hrothmund ah Hrothmund's a very rare name but it's actually one of the ancestors of the kings of the East Angles so perhaps Hrothmund was not killed like his brother Hrethrich he emigrated he emigrated to East Anglia and I always point out that there is an area in Yorkshire which is where I come from actually the area I come from which is called Gillingshire because it was once inhabited by the Yeatlings the little Yeats and I assume that these are the refugees from the defeated Yeats who decide not to surrender to the Swedes they decide to emigrate instead and that of course is the area where we find the only other example of the name Beowulf and several examples four at least of his uncle Higelac so defeated Yeats to Yorkshire defeated Danes to East Anglia defeated Jutes to Kent that's the way that uh, England is founded so Tolkien believed 
that the poet had created or more likely remembered a historical situation into which his fantasy in which to fit his fantasy events and what are the fantasy events so I'm turning away from history now and this is where we need to look at Selich spell which is Anglo-Saxon for wonder tale and that's the wonder tale which Tolkien told uh, which Tolkien, Tolkien wrote as a kind of original Beowulf the f it's his idea of the fairy tale which the poet knew and which he fitted into his historical chronology well um, what's the fairy tale if we could have the slide 10 Corey uh, it is the fairy tale of the bear's son and uh, the German scholar Friedrich Panzer uh, published a great big book somewhere in the 1910s which collected lots and lots and lots of examples of the bear's son folktale and uh, I've picked out some of the uh, the uh, uh, the features of it uh, and as you can see from the slide title what I'm saying is that Beowulf is remembered by Tolkien as Beorn in The Hobbit uh, Beorn, we, well, as you can see from uh, The Hobbit Beorn is a weir bear he's a human in the day and he's a bear at night uh, this is not said about Beowulf because the poet I think doesn't really like fairy tale much but he's still telling a story based on fairy tale and he can't get rid of all the elements of fairy tale well of course because they're useful to him so what can you say about bear's sons well they're enormously strong of course they are they're half bear um, uh, because they're enormously strong uh, they don't use or they can't use weapons Beowulf of course who has the hand grip of 30 thanes uh, practically the first thing we're told about him he can't use weapons when he uses swords they tend to bounce off or he breaks them because he's as the poet says his hand was too strong so how does he kill people well we have I think a rather good description of Beowulf fighting the standard bearer of the Franks whose name is Day Raven and what he does well Beowulf reminiscing about his his youth says uh, what's it um, my warlike grasp broke his house of bones and broke his house of bones and crushed out the pulses of his heart well I ask you does that sound like a bear hug house of bones that's your rib cage isn't it you crush someone's rib cage yes it will uh, stop the pulses of their heart Tolkien wasn't happy about this because he thought it was a bit um, primitive but well I'm sorry I think that's what the poem says furthermore this explains Beowulf's kind of carelessness in some ways when he's in Heorot waiting for Grendel to arrive Grendel turns up and immediately eats one of Beowulf's companions um, uh, hang on shouldn't a hero at this point jump to his feet and say hello uh, here I am you know, take me on uh, but he doesn't he just waits until his companion who is called Honcho which means glove a very peculiar name not a proper name at all if you ask me um, he, uh, he uh, does nothing about the death of Honcho and the poet tries to explain it by saying oh well it all happened very quickly what so quickly he didn't even move and there's another funny thing when Beowulf follows Grendel's mother 
uh, follows the, the track of, uh, well, he, he follows Grendel's mother, he dives into the lake, and um, he kills uh, Grendel's mother in the lake, and the blood gets into the water. Um, and at that point, all the people who are sitting on the shore get up and go away. The Danes all go. Actually, Beowulf's own companions, the Yeats, don't go. They stay where they are, because they're loyal. But the Danes all go home. When you think, uh, because you've seen blood in the water, what makes you think it's Beowulf's blood? He dived in to kill somebody, didn't he? Perhaps it's Grendel's mother's blood. And it is. So this scene of the companions walking away isn't really very logical. But it's what you get in fairy tale. In fairy tale, the abandonment of the hero by his companions is, well, it's a very standard feature of the bear's son fairy tale. One other thing is, um, we're told late on in the poem that, uh, that uh, the Yats didn't think much of Beowulf when he was young. They thought he was, and the word they use is slack, slack, slack. Um, uh, he was an unpromising youth. Uh, well, of course, bear's sons are unpromising because they're not really human. They're kind of um, stupid, shall we say? They're lazy. Bears hibernate, don't they? And the bear sons tend to sit by the fire and do nothing. So uh, they're not thought very much of until it's realized that they have qualities which uh, compensate for all that. So what I'm saying is that the poem is a fairy tale with the magic taken out and that uh, Beowulf himself is a, a kind of fairy tale hero who has been grafted with some difficulty into a much more courtly environment. Um, and note Unferth. Um, well, uh, next slide, please, Corey. Um, this is what uh, Tolkien says about Unferth, um, and he says, very, very rightly, does he belong to the, the Book of Kings, that's the courtly element, or does he belong to the Tales of Wonder, the fairy tale element? And he says that Unferth is the actual link between the two worlds, and produced by the contact of the two elements. And so he's very similar to Beowulf himself. Well, uh, long, long, long ago, long, long, long ago, um, it was my first uh, scholarly publication, actually. Um, I did an analysis of uh, Beowulf uh, along the lines of the fairy tale diagrams produced by a Russian called Vladimir Prop. And I'll tell you what my most interesting conclusion was. I won't, I won't bother you with the whole argument. Um, you know the story of Jack and the Beanstalk? Of course you know the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. Did it never strike you to ask this question, who gave Jack the beans? Because they're magic beans. Um, did the person who gave Jack the beans not know they were magic beans? Or did he have some ulterior motive in handing over the magic beans? Well, I won't go into the art uh, to, um, uh, which, which dominates the You might say that in The Hobbit, Gollum is the donor figure. Um, you might say, again, that in many fairy tales, the hero is uh, sees a, a, an, an old woman or sometimes an animal uh, and helps, the, helps them or gives them food or something, and it turns out that they uh, are the ones who give him whatever it is he needs to 
rescue the princess, fulfill his quest, all that kind of thing. Donors are a vital part of fairy tale. And Unferth, I think, is a kind of suppressed donor. Because what he does in the poem is he gives Beowulf a sword, Hrunting. This is very mysterious because Hrunting actually just, just doesn't work. Um, in fact, it's completely pointless. But Hrunting gets more space in the poem than it jolly well should, considering it's something that doesn't work. We're told about it, we're told about it not working, and Beowulf uh, brings it back with him and hands it back to Unferth with fulsome thanks and doesn't say it was totally useless. He's, uh, he's very, very uh, flattering about it. Um, I think that actually, in some kind of original story, Unferth had the job of giving Beowulf the vital weapon which he used to kill Grendel's mother. But the poet has decided to scrap that uh, to give Unferth a role as the kind of wicked counsellor and uh, also to, uh, to make the, the, sword, the vital sword the one which is found in the giant's cave. Well, um, uh, what I'm saying is that in Selich's spell, Tolkien gives us a kind of Panzer-style version, a, a, a version of the folktale of the kind found by Friedrich Panzer, but using Beowulfian characters. And if we could have uh, uh, the last slide, uh, Corey, uh, number 12. These are, the, these are the things that he's done in altering the Beowulf story. He's uh, introduced two companions, because the hero in fairy tales often has two companions, and they fail before the hero succeeds. So we have uh, uh, the ca a character invented called Ashwood, who is based on Asher in the poem, but doesn't act like him at all. And we have Honsho, who is in the poem. And they have uh, particular um, properties which uh, don't work. The enchanted spear, the gloves of strength. Uh, but, the, but they remain in the story for the, for the, for the real hero, uh, Beowulf, to take over. You note that Unferth is now cast as the disloyal companion. Um, and uh, Tolkien has decided to... Uh, interpret his name as meaning unfriend. That was a theory which uh, was quite popular uh, for a while. People said it was um, unfrith, which means uh, troublemaker, something like that. But, uh, but actually, uh, since Tolkien's time, it's been shown that that is untenable. So, uh, so that's, we've, got to, we've got to drop that idea. Nevertheless, uh, Tolkien, Tolkien, in his version of the fairy tale, makes Unferth into unfriend, and his role now is the disloyal companion who says he will help the hero by holding the rope so that he can descend into the underworld, but who then cuts the rope, abandons the rope, doesn't help him out. Um, he, he doesn't secure the rope. And there's a bit of a, a memory of that in Lord of the Rings, I think, when, you know, Sam and Frodo have climbed down their rope, and uh, Sam says, how are we going to get the rope back? So he shakes it, and it comes undone. And he says, uh, I thought I was better at tying knots than that. But of course, it's an elvish rope, which means it responds to your requirements. It doesn't just do what you do to it. Um, but Unferth has uh, got all these bad qualities now. He's, he doesn't lend the sword fronting, because uh, the, the weapon now being carried is the spear of Ashwood. He does not secure the rope. And later on, another folktale element, 
he, ca he cast doubt on the whole thing in the hall as if to claim credit himself. Well, what, what that slide is actually, it's a list of problems already noted with the poem. And Tolkien is trying to solve the problems by giving you the story as it was originally before the poet altered it for his own purposes. Well, um, 10 o'clock, um, I'll just sum up. Um, Tolkien thought, and I agree with him, that the poem was stratified. A fairy tale had been very carefully grafted into the memory of a real historical situation, while in the background there remained hints of a mythical situation. This mythical situation was pre-Christian, but without the worst elements of paganism. It was a kind of virtuous pagan situation. What Tolkien learned from Beowulf, this is what I said in my first lecture, uh, was the idea of putting characters into a kind of neutral situation, religiously neutral situation, making them virtuous pagans. As regards being stratified, well, one thing I've said about Lord of the Rings is that it's very hard to identify its genre. Is it an epic? Is it a romance? Is it a novel? Um, is it a fairy tale? It contains elements of all these genres and actually elements of what have been described as the five modes of, uh, of literature. Um, well, I don't know whether Tolkien thought anything of the five modes idea, but he did, I think, get the idea that a work like Beowulf and a work like Lord of the Rings could combine multiple modes and genres. And there's one other thing, I think, um, which I should mention. If one mysterious word in the poem was the word the, those, at the beginning, <coughs> another one was the word open at line 2071. This is uh, about the coming of the dragon. And the story in the poem is that somebody buries a treasure and abandons it and leaves it open, open. And then a dragon comes. Now, Tolkien translated open, which means open, as unprotected. Yes, well, that explains why the dragon can come upon it. But it does seem rather strange because we all know the rule about burying treasure, don't we? dig hole, put treasure in hole, and then, very important, fill the hole in again. Um, you don't dig the hole, put the treasure in it, and then walk away and leave it, which is what the poem seems to say. Especially as, if you do that, a dragon may wander by and say, oh, look, a hoard, just what I've been looking for. Uh, more logical and Critics of Beowulf pointed this out very early on. More logical would be to say that the last survivor who, who abandons the treasure turns into the dragon. In Lewis's terms, he does a kind of Eustace. You remember Eustace in, uh, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He lies down on the gold and he turns into a dragon. Well, I think that was actually a belief in the ancient northern world. You lie down on your gold especially if you've buried yourself alive with it. And when you bury yourself alive with your gold, you turn into a dragon. Well, surely that's the original story of Beowulf, but the Christian author, not liking it, has just sort of skipped over it.
But what uh, that I, the idea that gives you is one which attracted both Tolkien and Lewis, which is the idea that uh, a, the dragon is a kind of um, incarnation of greed. Uh, the greed which amasses hordes, the greed which refuses to abandon hordes, and the greed which makes you turn into a fierce, fire-breathing horde guarder, a warden of the horde. That's what a dragon is. Um, but that's because of the greed inside the person who was a person before he became a dragon. And this is what Tolkien called, in The Hobbit, the dragon sickness. And it's also what drives his early poem, The Horde, which is a story about a horde which belonged to the elves, which belonged to the dwarves, which belonged to human, well, which belonged to, to the dragon, which belonged to a human king, and which eventually will uh, be taken over by yet another human. The treasure passes from person to person, and each person or creature uh, to whom it passes, it's cursed. It doesn't do them any good because they have got the dragon sickness, the sickness which infects Thorin and which infects the master of Lake Town and uh, which, of course, uh, both Tolkien and Lewis thought was the characteristic vice of our era. Um, we all suffer, they thought, from draconitas, dragonness. And, yeah, well, uh, I, I leave that thought with you, uh, that Tolkien got the idea of the dragon sickness and dragonness, not from Beowulf, but from a problem in Beowulf, a crux in Beowulf, and from the attempts to solve that crux or problem in Beowulf. Well, summing up even more quickly, from Beowulf, Tolkien learned how to present virtuous pagans. He learned how to harmonize pagan and Christian myth. He learned how to mix literary modes and he learned the importance of chronology to which Tolkien devoted so much time and trouble which we so often don't notice. The poem didn't help him. I think he wanted it to, but it didn't help him with his early attempts to integrate England and fairyland. That never worked out. What he did much more successfully in the end was to bring England into fairyland. England being the Shire. He put the Shire inside fairyland, you might say, as a kind of anachronistic enclave within the wider world outside. And it also, we shouldn't forget this, it also encouraged him by giving him a major precedent, a very major precedent, for raising the status of fantasy. But, I'll say this very quietly, we needn't take seriously anymore his downgrading the poem as history. That was the consensus for a long time, but it looks increasingly wrong. But we can still admire the fantasy without turning our backs on the history. Okay, uh, well, um, that's what I have to say, and uh, I'll now uh, hope to answer questions if I can. Now, what I've got to do is show the control panel, which I have, click on the questions, which I have, and um, perhaps view in full screen mode. <laughs>
well, which has not quite worked so well, actually. Um, 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 well, never mind. I will uh, do what I usually do and scroll up and uh, see if I can read the questions as they pop up. Uh, Ilya, uh, hi Ilya, says the story of the arrival of Shul does sound like a Moses story. That's right, you know, Moses in the bulrushes uh, and, uh, and Shul in his boat. Um, and uh, Ilya says quite correctly, I guess there is quite a literature on it. Yes, indeed there is. Because there are several stories kind of like this, kicking around in the early reaches of English legend. None of them quite fit, but they're sort of similar, you know. There's even one about the monks of Abingdon had a practice of uh, floating a shield down the river. No one quite knows why they did it, um, but uh, they had some sort of uh, some sort of legend to explain it. Um, well, uh, Sparrow says, "Is Beowulf a wolf of the bees?" Um, uh, and if so, why isn't Beowulf uh, bee? Well, actually, because the word for bee is Beo without the w. It's B-E-O. So what I'm saying is that if Beowulf is the wolf of the bees, which is what I think, um, then it would be uh, Beo hyphen wolf, bee hyphen wolf. Uh, and that's, that's uh, pretty, pretty clear. Um, I should say, though, that people whose opinions I respect think that uh, Beowulf is really a name like Thorolf, very common Norse name, which means the wolf of Thor, the devotee of Thor. So they would say that Beowulf's name is not Beowulf, it's Beowulf, the wolf, the follower of Beowulf. Um, okay, okay. Um, uh, both are possible, but I prefer wolf of the bees just because Beowulf seems to me to be a bear, a weir bear, a Beowulf. Beorn, of course, means bear. And in the uh, saga of Rolf Kraki, and Rolf is a character in Beowulf, a very, a very disguised character, um, there is a character there who is called Budvar Bjarki. And his daddy is called Bjorn, sorry, Bjorn, which means bear, and his mummy is called Bera, which means lady bear, and he is called Bjarki, which means little bear. Oh, we need now is Goldilocks, and we've got the complete fairy tale. But surely, Budvar Bjarki, who is in some ways very like Beowulf, he is a bear cub, the son of a, of a, a son of a male and female bear. Uh, he's definitely a bear's son. So I think that the uh, it's strange that this bear story, bear's son story, is associated with the shielding dynasty in two completely separate traditions and you wonder what's the what lies behind that and I have no idea um, uh, uh, Ilya again says sending um, boats with the dead was taken up by Guy K in uh, Finavar tapestry elves would board boats when they had time to depart yeah and of course Tolkien um, wrote poems about it. Uh, there's one in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil called The Last Ship, which is actually a reworking of a much earlier poem, a much earlier poem called Firiel. And I've compared the two poems 
somewhere or other. I think it was in, I guess it was in The Road to Middle Earth, unless it was in Tolkien, author of the century, and just pointed out the way in which um, Tolkien's imagination kind of darkened over the 30-year span between the poems. Um, but the idea of the last ship, the elves going oversea in the last ship, was certainly very much part of his going oversea obsession. Well, uh, uh, who's there? I can't always read your, read the names. Andrew, 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 someone. Well, I'm sorry, uh, Andrew, I haven't got your surname, but you're asking, did Tolkien get the name Bilbo from Bilboa? Uh, the um, uh, the city in Spain famed in the Middle Ages for swordcraft. Well, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I often like other hobbits uh, stare at maps, and uh, as Tolkien did. Um, and I remember noticing at one point, I was looking actually at um, worm names, you know, like worm Wormlow and so on. And uh, there's one in Hereford, which is an interesting county to Tolkien. And I was looking at this map and just just looking at the names on that, I saw um, Bilbo's hump there. I thought, well, where did he get that name from? Uh, I mean, sorry, is it possible that he got the name Bilbo from looking at this map? As I am, in the same way as I really think that he got Baggins, the name Baggins, from Baggins Wood which is in Worcestershire, another county of great importance to Tolkien, and quite close to where his Aunt Jane lived. So Tolkien may well have known Baggins Wood, you know, from early youth. Uh, but uh, my own guess is that he picked up Bilbo from wondering about, about a place name, which is something he quite often did. Um, the whole of Farmer Giles of Ham is a kind of... Uh, um, exploration of place names. What do they? What did they mean? What does tame mean? Well, it's tame dragon. Uh, what's worming hall mean? Well, it's the hall of the wormings. Um, who are the worming? Uh, yeah, okay, so that's where the story starts to, to, to arrive. So I, I think it's probably a place name, but I don't think it's a Spanish one. I think it's probably a native one. Um, Sparrow again, uh, um, she comments, laws renewed long forsaken where they do not know the king. Well, that's a kind of return of the king motif, but it's really, in the case of King Sheev, it's kind of coming of the king. Um, uh, Halstein uh, says very rightly that some postulate that the Eruli were a mercenary brotherhood more than a proper tribe. Could be. Could have been a warrior society. That's certainly the kind of image they give, but they do seem to have been able to act collectively and of course, Jordanes says that the Danes expelled them from their, what do you say, their, their, their proper homes. Sedes proprios? I've forgotten the, the phrase. So that suggests they did actually have a kind of home base. Um, what is interesting is the way that they are associated with runic inscriptions. And some have suggested that Erelar is a kind of claim to being a rune master that the Erelar are famous for control of runes, and that is why you start your inscription by saying, Ek Erelar. There are some seven of these in uh, the runic database, uh, which uh, has been 
set up by Scandinavian scholars. But the interesting thing is, they're all very early. After, I think, about the year 550, there aren't any anymore. So that suggests that they were, uh, that, that somebody put a stop to them. Um, but they're also, uh, I mean, uh, the, the idea that they may be a warrior society is because their reputation is of uh, running naked into battle, you know, behaving like berserks, whatever. So my own feeling is that they are just a particularly aggressive and warlike tribe with also a peculiar connection with, uh, with uh, uh, early, early runic inscriptions. Um, Uh, again, I'm not doing very well. At re it's Andrew Boynton. That's right. Um, how would the Erily spell their name? Uh, I thought it would be the Erilas. Well, that last um, last letter, the Z, is uh, is the one that in runic inscriptions is usually spelled like a capital R. And people argue about whether it should be represented as a z sound or a r sound. Um, and I suspect that it changed from one to the other. It was a z sound, which eventually became a r sound. Um, so uh, Erilaz might well be uh, an earlier form of their own name for themselves. Um, and uh, although, as always, this is argued by people different ways, but I think it's very likely that it is the same uh, root as the word which becomes Earl and Jarl. And so, in fact, this uh, tribe or warrior society or whatever they were, they called themselves the nobles. They called themselves the, you know, the earls, the top dogs, um, and, which is a kind of self-flattering thing that people do, uh, like the Saxons calling themselves after their national weapon and the Franks calling themselves either the free men or else possibly after their national weapon, which was the throwing axe. Francisca, we don't know. But there's a tendency for people to give themselves um, uh, self-flattering names, and, and I think uh, the Eorla the or Erilar or Yarlar is one of them. Um, Ilya uh, brings up um, a, a book which I have read, but I don't have my copy of it anymore, Steblin Kaminsky's Theory of Syncretic Truth, advanced in his book The Saga Mind which I haven't thought about for a long time. Um, yes. Well, um, um, I'm afraid I, I don't remember the book well enough to comment, Ilya, but it makes me wonder where the book's gone. Every now and then I look at my shelves and think, I know I had a copy of that. Um, what happened to it? Usually some person lost to shame has borrowed it and not haven't handed it back. As I get older, these uh, memories come to me more often. Uh, Alex, I think, must have misunderstood me. It is certainly not 15 factorial. It is 17 factorial. Um, and there are arguments about, uh, how, about what factorial means. But what I mean is that I say 17 plus 16 plus 15 plus 14 all the way down to 1. Uh, and that, as I say, is determined by n times n plus 1 over 2. Um, OK. 
Kate comments that uh, taking away the mead benches was an early form of prohibition and that didn't work either. Actually it did work. You take away the mead benches, you smash the hall and that means that, um, well, uh, uh, they can't drink anymore except under your supervision and that's the basic idea. Halstein uh, um, again says, is Beowulf a historical novel? Well, no, because it's not a novel, but I think it is a a work with a, a, a surprising awareness of history. Yes, uh, Luke says uh, he wonders what uh, Tolkien's versions of the Hand and the Child fairy tale would have looked like. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the question of um, the influence of fairy tale on the Inklings is actually um, uh, an interesting one, which. Well, I can't say it hasn't been taken up because Dimitra Femi has written about it, but no doubt there is more to be said. Um, Sparrow asked how to spell Friedrich Panzer. Uh, you got it right, Sparrow. It's P-A-N-Z-E-R. Um, Halstein again says, was there a clear difference between history and myth in the early Middle Ages? Well, actually, Halstein, probably not. Uh, I think it's it's our habit, C.S. Lewis pointed this out, it's our habit in the modern world to divide things up and to insist on clear boundaries between this and that and the other thing. People are always saying to us, define your terms. Um, well, in the Middle Ages, uh, yes, scholastic uh, philosophers defined their terms and argued about them, but I think most people, uh, if you've got no documents, it's very hard to uh, tell the difference between history and myth, um, especially if, you know, the information you've got has no dates. You c people say, if you've got no dates, you've got no history. And I think for people in the kind of Beowulfian world, they had no dates. They got no way of reckoning dates. Um, so, uh, uh, so you might say that uh, they didn't have history, and once you got past a person's own lifetime and perhaps the lifetime of their parents or grandparents, you were into the into the dream time and everything that was remembered about that, it might be historical, it might be mythical, how would you know? Um, so I think, uh, no, there was not a clear difference and that's really in a way what we're looking at. Yelia uh, uh, comments on uh, a parallel with uh, the Jules Verne story uh, Mysterious Island, which again is another one I haven't read. Um, but uh, yes, fairy tale motifs appear in all over the place. Uh, Ilya mentions Greta's saga, very very true, and of course in modern novels as well, because they're very useful. Um, Ilya agrees about anachronism as uh, as a feature of of the Hobbits, and of course uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, Halstein again, no, sorry, it's Luke, uh, says that uh, von Sydow's responses to Panzer would have um, been known to Tolkien. And actually, you know, Tolkien starts off his 1936 lecture by saying, oh, you know, I haven't read all this stuff. Oh, I'm not so diligent as to read everything that everybody's written about Beowulf. He had. Um, so, uh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, 
working out his debt to previous Beowulf scholarship would be uh, uh, quite a difficult exercise, um, especially as most of it has been forgotten. Uh, but um, if you want, if you want a, a rundown on Beowulf scholarship up to Tolkien, uh, you'll find it on academia.edu under my name. If you, if you skim down the long, tedious list of articles there, you'll see my introduction to the volume uh, called Critical Heritage, in which I excerpted some, and translated, some tiny fraction of the enormous literature on Beowulf. But if you read through that, and you then read Tolkien's 1936 account of the Babel of voices arguing about Beowulf, you should be able to identify pretty well all the voices. Um, and uh, th that, to me, makes the whole thing much funnier, because even the daftest ideas which Tolkien uh, uh, cites, somebody held all of them. And, of course, there was a, 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 as I said, I think, right at the start, everything about Beowulf is argued about. Nobody agrees about anything. No, you know, there is nothing you could say about it which would be agreed by all people. But I have to say, I found Friedrich Panzer really rather convincing. It was one of those books where, after you've read the first 50 fairy tales, you think, all right, Friedrich, all right, all right, I've got the idea now. But then he cites another 180 or something. Um, still, it was a very widely dispersed fairy tale, and it does look rather like Beowulf. Um, Kate suggests that Beowulf's name could be a pun. It's both the devotee of barley and the, the wolf of the bee. Um, I guess I guess so. And what, what is even more likely, I think, is that it might have been intended one way and taken another. Uh, because once you've launched one of these ideas into the world, you can't say how people are going to take it. So I wouldn't be surprised if the original meaning was a follower of the forgotten god Beo, but this was then understood by people as uh, the wolf of the much more familiar bee. Uh, and at that, at that point, at that point, um, the bear's son tale came in, because the wolf of the bee is, uh, is the bear. Yes, and in fact, I said that, and I, I now find that, uh, that um, Carl, Carl Anderson, uh, has, has already thought of that and said much the same thing. So, uh, just to read what he says, this is Carl, I have wondered, even if Beowulf is a barley name etym etymologically, it could have been understood as a Beowulf bear name. C.F. the historical Beowulf, after a divine Beowulf figure, had faded, and such a, uh, a reinterpretation might have encouraged the use of a hero named Beowulf within a bear's son tail environment. Uh, that's it, Carl. That's what I was trying to say, but you said it better. Um, ah, Sparrow quotes Shakespeare at us, Merry Wives of Windsor. Crammed like a good Bilbo in the circumference of a pack, hilt to point. Yes, Bilbo, I think, I think, is a word, not a very common one, for a kind of dagger. Do I think there's a connection between the name of the sword, Frunting, 
and the German name for dog, Hund, uh, no. Um, no, I've seen an etymological explanation of fronting, and it's it's passed from mind. Uh, no, I can't remember what it was. Sorry, uh, I'd, I'd have to sort of uh, rack my brains for that. Um, no, uh, uh, I can't remember, but it, it definitely wasn't a hund. It, it had the kr in it. Ilya says, it, it wasn't me who took it, but I've got a PDF I'll send you. Well, thank you, Ilya, that would be jolly good. And my email address, if you need it, is, I think you know it already, Ilya, shippy at slu dot edu. Um, Joe has come up with another explanation of 153. 1 to the third power. Yeah, plus 5 to the third power, plus 3 to the third. That, that's 3 plus uh, 125 makes 128, plus 3 to the third is 27. I make that 155, uh, Joe. Am I, uh, am I adding up wrong? Oh, well, Alex says uh, factorial is not the right uh, term. It's a triangle number. Okay. I've certainly seen factorial, but I accept it. Um, was Tolkien particularly chary of acknowledging his debts in a scholarly or source sense? Uh, famously, he refused to acknowledge any kind of debt to Wagner. Uh, true. Um, I think Tolkien was pretty scrupulous when he was... Uh, um, writing in a scholarly way, but um, but then he often wasn't writing in a scholarly way. And uh, as I know horribly well, if you start annotating everything you um, you say with all previous thought on the subject, um, it becomes unwieldy, and uh, and eventually you lose your audience. Um, so uh, I think there are occasions when you would think it was just not worth annotating everything. And one of those is, of course, the 1936 lecture. Uh, he didn't annotate every single, he, in fact, he didn't annotate any of the, uh, the babel of voices he, uh, he mentioned. And perhaps uh, it would have spoiled the joke if he had. Um, so I think I, uh, nowadays, of course, you wouldn't get away with that. You have to, nowadays, you have to write a note about everything. And that's probably why scholarly books have become so expensive and so few people buy them. Sometimes you just have to get on with it, I think. Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I can see this number of businesses bothering people, and um, uh, I'm not concerned about, uh, about uh, uh, what to call it, uh, but you can see that 153 is, adds up the way I said, and that is definitely the way Augustine took it, 10 plus 7. Um, I can't get Joe's uh, sum to work out, No, I make it 155. Sorry, Joe, um, if I got it wrong, that's, that's my fault. Um, and I, I did actually know uh, uh, Sparrow's other quote. Um, she'd obviously got the... Um, ah, it's Ilya, actually, not Sparrow. 
but uh, um, he mentions uh, uh, Bilbo's uh, worse than the mutines in the Bilbo's is the is a quotation and I see it's going to come up and it's a it's a chain or a manacle I think yeah actually a long iron bar uh, furnished with sliding shackles and a lock by which to fix one end of the bar to the floor or ground um, and quotations given well I uh, I sincerely hope that has nothing to do with our Bilbo he is not a shackle or a bar or, or any of those things no I, I think it's probably what Tolkien said it's a name which doesn't really mean anything but which may nevertheless have been found in the landscape um, I could also quote Christopher Tolkien who said at one point very scornfully actually um, it is something like it is surely evident that theories based on the fancied resemblance between names are not worthy of scholarly discussion I'm paraphrasing it but that was the gist of it and it's true uh, there are only so many sounds we can make so that uh, um, so that uh, the element of coincidence is always there, um, and uh, that actually I think was uh, what philology decided to annul. Philology insisted on knowing the strict etymology of words and not just saying, "Oh, that word looks like that word, so they must be connected." That that's not the way to work. So I don't know the origin of Bilbo. Um, and I think it is probably beyond our recovery but I, I could say quite a lot more I think about the way that Tolkien plucked names from maps for instance I think his names in the homecoming of Berchnoth, Berthelm's son his two characters there are Tiedwald and Tochtel and I found both of those on the map of the Malden area which I suspect that Tolkien studied like me uh, just to see what names there were and he picked them off the map he thought there were characters who could have been at Malden whose names could have been passed on into the landscape okay I think I've uh, got to the end of the questions uh, oh no one has just popped up couldn't Frodo also come from the old English for fortune or wisdom um, and uh, Ilya comments that J.K. Rowling obviously picked Snape's name, Severus Snape, off the Suffolk map. Snape Watering, indeed. The village of Snape Watering, where my good friend Sam Newton lives. And Sam insists that Beowulf was written at Snape Watering. And he and I have often argued about it. For I have said, no, Sam, Snape is your home village, and you think Beowulf was written there but my home village is Staithes and I think Beowulf was written there and neither of us has succeeded in convincing the other but we did in fact have a talk in Snape where everyone voted for Sam's theory and a talk in Staithes where everyone voted for my theory so that suggests that um, these opinions are not strictly speaking objective um, Could Frodo come from the Old English word for fortune or wisdom? No, well, of course it does. <coughs> Both the Old English word Froda and the Old Norse word Frothi mean the wise one. That's, that's, that's the basic meaning of the word. Uh, and that, of course, is in some respects associated with the legendary characters.
Um, Carl Anderson says, seek Beowulf and you shall find him, but none shall believe you. That's right, that's right, Carl. That's why I keep on coming up with these really good theories about Beowulf and nobody believes me. Um, and the only consolation is they don't believe anyone else either. Uh, well, I think, uh, I think I'll let Carl have the last word there. Seek and you shall find and none shall believe you. All Beowulf scholars think they are incarnations of Cassandra who always prophesied the truth and no one ever believed her. Okay, I think that's us done. Um, what is the time? Um, yeah, 10.37. So we're a bit over time. Uh, okay, Corey, I think we're done. I hope everybody enjoyed that and uh, the talk will of course be recorded and Corey is going to splice the failed one and, the, and this one together and uh, perhaps produce a better version. Corey? That's right. We will do. Uh, we will do what we can do there. Well, thank you so much again, uh, uh, Dr. Shippey, for uh, for speaking here and for giving this seminar. Uh, it has been a wonderful look. Uh, I've never really gotten the chance to go through and really look carefully at 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 the the Tolkien's thoughts, which emerged in 2014, alongside you know the uh, the his thoughts, which we've all known so long, uh, you know, from uh, from the original essay. Uh, so that was really. Uh, Really, really interesting to hear, and of course, I have to admit myself that um, so much spell was the thing I was most excited about when that uh, Beowulf uh, book was being released. You know, the 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 thing I turned to right away and read first when I when I when I received my copy of the book was so much spell because uh, I'd heard you know rumors about that, but of course never gotten to see uh, it or anything like it. So I was uh, I, I was I was very interested in that and fascinated to see. Uh, I was glad to hear you talk about Unferth because Unferth's role in that story uh, really, uh, really jumped out at me there too. So anyway, thanks again so much uh, uh, for sharing with us as always. Thanks everyone for uh, for attending and for bearing with us uh, in our uh, uh, replacement uh, session here today. Glad we were able to get through everything fine today, as I was hopeful that we would. And thanks very much. Wanted to let you guys know that our next special seminar will be uh, beginning soon, uh, later this month, and uh, it's going to be from Verlin Flieger, who is going, and uh, the seminar is going to be called Tolkien in the Dark, talking about the dark stories of uh, Tolkien's uh, youth, looking at uh, both uh, the lay of Eotru and Etrune, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and also his, and also the Kulervo, so. Um, she's going to be looking at both of those things and and uh, and this sort of dark side of Tolkien that we can see uh, in those earlier works. So that should be a, a, a wonderful session as well. But uh, thanks again, Dr. Shippey, for joining us. Well, thank you, Corey. Thanks, everybody, for attending. Excellent. Very good. And we will see everybody around. Thanks very much. Good night, all. Bye now. If you enjoyed this seminar, please consider making a small donation to Signum University. Your gift will help us continue to make the seminar series and other great content available for free to the public. Just go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate slash seminars. Thanks!